At Drummond Golf, we understand your passion. Nice roll. And that's because every Drummond Golf store is owned and run by a local who loves the game as much as you do. Yeah, it's come off the face really well. Someone who knows where you play and what you need. Oh, yeah. Looking good. With Australia's biggest range and expert knowledge. Great. Now let's try that putter with this grip. So if you want to improve your game, see a local expert at Drummond Golf. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of The Thing About Golf, the podcast trying to answer the enduring question, what is it that draws people to this game? Rod Murray is my name and I'm joined on the digital blower today by my colleague John Huggan, who's in the driver's seat for this episode, a chat with 2006 US Open winner Jeff Ogilvy. Huggy, you sat down with Jeff at Augusta this year. I reckon that's a good time to catch him. His neurons would have been firing at Augusta National, would they not, given that he's a complete golf nerd. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, we, he and I have talked many times about Augusta. He's a huge fan. Um, he did well there on more than one occasion. Uh, he mm. kind of had the game for winning that tournament if he'd um, hang in there a bit longer than he did. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you're right. It's, it's the ideal place. Um, and the media centre at Augusta, which is outrageously ostentatious, um, does have a couple of rooms set aside for podcasts. So they're way ahead of the game in that respect. How very modern of them. Wouldn't it be nice if there were others doing the same thing, Huggy? <laughs> you mentioned he had a, he, he did have a couple of close calls. 2011, he was right there when there was mm. four Australians in the mix and was stolen by a South African, Charles Schwartzel. If he had said Ogilvy was going to win a major at the start of his career, you would have probably picked the Open or Augusta, wouldn't you? Not the US Open. He didn't have the US Open-style game, and yet that's the one that he won. Absolutely not. I mean, um, but then, you know, that's true of other players. I mean, look at Phil Mickelson's got the most unlikely game for, for US Opens. And okay, he hasn't won it, but he's been runner up six times. In fact, in the, yeah. the time that Jeff did win it, um, Phil managed to finish second <laughs> by A, you know, hitting it all over the place to begin with. And then B, obviously screwing up the last hole pretty badly. But, um, Phil never played US Open courses like they were supposed to play, be played, you know, up the middle on the green. He was all over the shop. So, and Jeff Jeff was never the most, I think he would admit himself, never the most reliable driver. Um, so that made the US Open the, the least likely for him to win. But then when you think about it a bit more and use Phil as the example, it wasn't that surprising. No. Well, frankly, temperament for a US Open, Jeff, you wouldn't have thought he no. particularly younger. He was hot-headed and the US Open drives players nuts. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, I think he, he Jeff always gives a lot of credit to his caddy, um, Squirrel, um, and I think he's right to do that. Squirrel was a great calming influence um, to Jeff in times of high stress. And there's a there was a great moment in that US Open, I think it was the 11th fairway on the third day where they stood there arguing basically back and forth where Jeff wanted to go for the green with the wood and Squirrel just wouldn't let him. And Squirrel won the argument and was proved to be right in the end, so... I think Squirrel deserves at least a piece of that US Open. Takes courage as a caddy to say no to a player who's determined yeah. to do something, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, indeed. That, of course, is just one small part of what's been a really interesting career and is in a really interesting phase now, Jeff, in the golf course design world. I haven't had a chance to listen to the whole interview yet. Did you talk much about that? I know that you know, Jeff, I don't want to give away any trade secrets, but you kind of ghostwrite his column for Golf Australia magazine. In truth, he could probably do it himself, should he want to. He, he's a pretty bright he could. He could absolutely do it himself, although he does make the point that he said that what takes me, you know, say three hours would take him three days, you know, just because he's not a a journalist, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's got the you know, wide vocabulary and he could, 
easily write the column himself if he could, uh, if he had the time and the inclination. But um, he, he does make the point, of course. Um, I think he's joking when he says that I write better as him than I do as myself. But um, there's probably some truth to that. <laughs> Indeed. How many awards has Jeff written on the back of your writing? Well, he, he's won more than me. Put it that way. Yeah, the multi-award-winning Jeff Ogilvy describes himself as. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Caddies all over the place. Uh, they can be tough interviews when you know someone as well as you know Jeff. How did you find this one? Well, yeah, you're right. I, w- I was a little bit, um, you know, a little bit trepidation because we've talked so often about so many subjects. I was worried that um, we might almost dry up. But there was no danger of that. I mean, Jeff's the kind of guy that, you know, almost every month when we sit down to talk about his column, we 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 start off with absolutely no idea what we're going to do, and then within about two or three minutes, he's he's off and running. I mean, he, he's if you just give him a little bit, a little bit of push in the right direction, and he just needs that to to go. And and he's certainly, you know, as I think most people will know by now, he's certainly one of the more interesting, if not the most interesting, golf professionals to listen to. Well, thoughtful, isn't he, about things beyond just his own game, and that's what makes golf professionals the most interesting. Well, it's a sharp mind. It's a sharp column every month. I am sure, and I'm keen to listen to what I'm sure is a fabulous interview. It's been great of you to to come along and give us a bit of an insight today, Huggy. My pleasure. Okay, uh, welcome to the latest edition of the Thing About Golf podcast. Um, Our guest this time around is somebody, I can't believe he hasn't done this already, but uh, I'm assured that you haven't, Um, Jeff Ogilvie. 2006 US Open champion. Um, what was the thing about golf for you? I don't know because I don't ever remember not doing it. Um, I mean, it's been said by a few people and a few things, I think, but I guess golf chose me rather than the other way around. What do you mean exactly by that? Well, mum tells this story that she bought my sister, who was 16 months older than me, so we're really close. When she was three or four, she bought she didn't she bought her the little broom that you would follow mum around the kitchen with. Right. I mean, this is probably not very PC anymore, but in the late seventies, early eighties, that was kind of what I guess one of the things you did. So the little daughter, yeah, would follow mum around the yeah. kitchen with a little broom, and she, and I was really little, two or three, and she didn't know what to buy me, so she's like, I'll get Jeff one too. Um, and apparently, all I did was grab this little broom and hit balls with it. I just walk around the house and just hit things with it. Right. So she's like, "Well, maybe we should have got little golf clubs instead." So uh, were they golfers at the time? Your parents? Dad was just getting into it. Right. Yeah. Um, and the earliest, I don't remember that, but I remember chipping balls in the back garden with Dad, and we had those little wiffle balls that were little plastic things with, with the holes, holes in them. In them, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they only go like twenty yards or something, but that's enough when you're th- for four. That's golf, right? And we used to hit them, and he used to hit them up onto the roof, and they would bounce back down the roof. It was like a ball returner almost, these little plastic things. And I have vivid memories of doing that, and I'd make little golf courses in the backyard with those things, and I just went from there, I guess. Got a set of clubs for Christmas. They were secondhand. I think I was seven, like my first set, um, little cut-down secondhand, nothing really very fancy, um, but I thought they were the best things in the world. And then Dad would take me to what make were they? Can you remember? That was a brand called Fox F O X X. All right, okay, yeah. And uh, it was four six eight pitching wedge, yeah, and a two wood, mm-hmm. yeah. And then he'd start booking us golf. We'd play Sandy, Sandringham Golf Club, the Muni right next door to Royal Melbourne, mm-hmm. sandwiched between Royal Melbourne and Victoria Golf yeah. Club. Yeah. And I, my memory is it was like every Sunday, but it couldn't have been. But it was very regular golf. 
he'd call up during the week, get his tea time on Sunday, and we'd go play. Right, just the two of you, with whoever, with the random. Oh, right. It was all you always get put with four, four with right. two others. Right. Um, and we always scored. He always made us do a scorecard. We always played by the rules. Like from day one, I've I had all my for he he had or we had all my first scorecards and first score was one hundred and eighteen. I remember that vividly, and it was obviously varied up and down, and then progressively it came down, and he kept the f- the first card in the nineties, and then the first card in the eighties, and then the first card in the seventies. And yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I ask this question a lot in these podcasts, but I mean, when did it become clear that there was um, apart from the, ob- the initial obsession, there was some talent there? I don't know. Uh, not really, because it was all all I ever did was play with Dad and probably two randoms at Sandy. Uh, when did you? Start I don't know. I always that? felt like it was pretty easy, and I didn't understand why Dad would like complain about how hard it was. Right. I don't know. But when you're only hitting it sixty yards or something, um, it's pretty simple. He goes, "Oh, when you get older, it's not so easy, Jeff." And um, probably not until I started playing with peers that I realised I was probably finding it a bit easier than they were. Um, I don't know. I loved it. I mean, watched all the – started wanting to watch all the golf tournaments on TV and we'd tape all the tournaments and I'd watch them. You'd watch the Masters broadcast over and over and over again. Like from about 86 onwards, I remember having the tapes. Um, well, you, you were a bit of a reader as well though, weren't you? Which is unusual, I think, for kids – I mean, I didn't start reading golf books initially. I mean, it was only later on when you kind of got into it a bit more and was interested in certain aspects of it. I think mum and dad got me uh, down the fairway, Jones's first sort of autobiography. It takes him to a – doesn't even get to the Grand Slam. Gets to about – he's about 24 or something at the end of that one. It's his, um, his, his temperament years. Yeah, and my copy, it's like, happy birthday, Jeff. Da-da-da, I hope you enjoy this or something. And I think I was like 12 or something. Mm-hmm. So I read that. And then I sort of looked for golf books for whatever. I mean, I wasn't – I mean, it wasn't like it was all golf and it was only golf. I was plenty doing plenty of kid stuff, but I would read golf books, loved them. Yeah, I remember getting the Mark McCormack annual for 1973, the year of golf, 1973. And the things I can still tell you about what happened in 1973, just because I, I read that book – you know, over and over and over, you know. It's amazing what leaves an impression when you're a kid. Yeah. So I read the Jones book a lot um, and Gary Player, a biography. And then I started looking for biographies and stuff because I thought I loved the story, like what kind of what we're doing now. Like I loved the story of how Gary Player got to doing what he was doing and how there was two or three Norman ones and the Seve one and the Hogan stuff. And I just got into the – I love the writing too, the the – even at a young age, there's something really appealing and simple about the language that Jones and Keel had used in those books. It's like, I wish people would write like that it's now. It's hard to write that simply. Yeah. you know. Um, and it was so easy to read and described it with words that I hadn't heard before that they weren't teaching me at school. And it, it was, I don't know, it was just... Who who were your heroes? Were you the, the you know, like everybody in Australia seems to be a Greg Norman fan at that point? Yeah, it was Norman really, I think. But, I mean, I grew up... Probably three good shots from the fence at Royal Melbourne. Probably a par five and a par three distance, you know, probably six or 700 yards from the third hole on the east course, which at the time was um, 15 on the composite course. And there was a tournament in the 80s every year, it felt like, at Royal Melbourne. 84 Australian Open, 85 Australian Open, I think. 
87 Australian Open where there was a walk-off in the Grand Prix. When, when did Watson win? Watson won in 84 and everyone came. There was – everybody came. So I saw the best in the world all the way through the 80s. And so, I mean, I'm born in 1977. I'm at the Bicentennial Classic in 1988. Mum and Dad gave me the week off school. I was 11 and they gave me the whole week off school. I and mean, everyone was there. Nicholas was there, Watson, Norman, Fred Kappel's nearly lost to Roger Davis in a playoff. Um, it was incredible. I spent the whole week just following golfers around. So they must have recognised some, you know, this incredible level of interest in somebody that age to give you a week off school. Is I guess. I mean, I was already obsessed. Yeah. yeah. And my school was actually right next to the seventeenth tee on the east, on the east course, which is the seventeenth on the composite. Like, and I would be walking, watching Fred Couples go play down the seventeenth, and I'd hear the bell for recess and stuff. And yeah. It was fantastic. It's yeah. like I'm winning this week. And they just dropped me off there and I'd be there all day. 11. I can't even think of leaving my 11-year-old at a golf tournament all day by himself, but I did it all week, you know. So who did you gravitate towards then? Or what What was the what was energising you the most? Or what aspect of it? Was it just the glamour of it probably at that stage? No, I don't know. I just loved it. That was part of it. I loved the range. I didn't really ever follow Norman because it was too hard to follow him. It was just too many people. Well, you wouldn't be that big at that point. But no. you could be sitting at the range at Royal Melbourne watching golfers hit. I loved watching them hit it um, just because I, I want to I be able to hit it like that. And um, you could tell when Norman had arrived at the course somehow just by the feeling. All of a sudden there's this buzz. It's a bit like Tiger these days. Like You can just tell. Savvy had that as well. Yeah, you can just tell. And then he would stride onto the range and he just looked like a movie star. Um, I didn't follow him. I remember the 88, I followed Freddie for at least three rounds. There's something who doesn't like watching Fred Couples play golf. And even at 11, it just made sense. Even now, I'd like yeah. Um, yeah, it just made sense. I remember following him a lot and being really disappointed when he lost the playoff. Even though Roger Davis won, he was an Australian. I didn't care. Freddie was my man that week. Um, I don't know, but everyone came through. And I got to know all the people at Royal Melbourne. I ended up caddying at Royal Melbourne sort of soon after that when I was sort of 12 and 13. And we used to get uh, access to the East Course after 4.30. You'd go and caddy on a Saturday morning or something. And, but any day you could play after 4.30 on the East Course, which was a really good deal. It's quite enlightened, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, a really good deal. And also in the days, Australian had, Australians had stopped taking caddies so much. They were like, I didn't get to go out much. I probably only went out. 15 times in two years, like not very much. Um, but I didn't do it to caddy. I did it so I could play golf. Um, and this is before even – this is I wasn't a member anywhere yet, so that was my golf. So all summer, um, mum had dropped me up at the course at 4.29 and I'd walk to the first tee on the east course and play until dark. She'd leave me there with they, – They never had to worry about where you were then? No, she'd leave me there with 20 cents for a phone call. Like call me, there was a public phone in the locker room. I could go use and call her and say, oh, I'm done now. <laughs> and she'd come get me. That's brilliant. Um, and then I joined Cheltenham Golf Club, which, and I was about thirteen or fourteen. And then that was it. I was now. Then I had a proper handicap, and there was other kids around and people to compete with, and I was off. I've always been quite intrigued. I mean, I look at it from the outside, obviously. Um, the pennant system in your country. I mean, it, it seems like a great breeding ground for people that are going to progress, like you did. Oh, it's you incredible. Know, yeah, place I mean, to start. I mean, Pennant, they have it in New South Wales too, but in Victoria, especially Metropolitan Melbourne, every private club 
which is most of them, every membership club, I mean, they're all totally private, but every membership club had a pennant team and it was divisions, division one, I think there's six divisions and there's about eight teams in each division, division one, division two, division three, and promotion relegation. Yeah, all good. Um, and all match play as well. All match play. So it's seven, seven v seven every Sunday morning for eight, like an eight week season, and then a final, and um, and it was a very, it's a big prider place for the clubs, especially up high, like the Division One teams, which was all the Sand Belt, which was Kingston Heath and Victoria and Metro, and it was fantastic. And you were playing against the best, and I ended, you end up, you start off at number seven, like number five in the minor pennant team, the junior pennant team, and you end up in the seniors and. By the time I was playing number one, you're playing number one, you're playing the best player, the best six or seven players in the state, you're playing them every Sunday. Yeah, but the, um, the real point is, though, that you're playing, when you, from the start, you're, you're playing somebody or p- against people who are slightly better than you Yes, as you move on up. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing better than that. No, and you're in the team, and so you've got the whole club behind, so there's a little bit more pressure. You've got people watching a little bit. Um, and, yeah, and when, you, when you're good as a kid, you end up playing the wily old veteran who's 36 who's been playing pennant for 20 years and he knows all the tricks of match play and um, there's absolutely no doubt. I ended up pretty decent match player in the end because of playing against wily old guys like that who'd play all the games and um, by the time I was 17 or 18, I knew all the tricks and all the games of match play because they'd done it to me all before. Do you think that was a factor later on? I mean, your your match play record, even at the level level you reached, is extraordinary. I mean, you Won twice the world match play and got the final another time. And President's Cup record singles is terrific as well. I mean, I, I always had a theory, and you've heard me say this before, but the it's not the, the only reason. But your your short putting was amazing. I mean, you just didn't miss short putts, and I think that's huge in match play. If you don't miss any short putts, you're never giving the other guy any encouragement, and he's he's always on the back foot. I think. Yeah, short putting was I was very good through that period for sure. Um, but match play fascinated when I got here because all the kids, we can all play match play in Australia. We all know what we're doing because we all play pennant and all that big, the Victorian amateur, the Australian amateur, they were all match play tournaments. And when I started playing these world match plays against these pros, mostly Americans, it was very obviously quick, obvious straight away that these guys did not know how to play match play at all, like at all. And it's it's not the same game at all and it was quite fun Um I'm not. It's not gamesmanship, but it's just understanding match play and how to play it. Um, it was quite fun, actually, to play against guys who really were just playing a stroke play game, sort of stroke play style golf in match play. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Jason was the same. Jason's a great match player. Um, he would have played a lot of match play at home. Poulter's obviously great. I mean, the the youth. The- yeah, well, we grew up. Playing we don't match play, play pennant, but we have a lot of there's a hell of a lot of match play in Britain. Yeah, which and it's fascinating to me because golf in the US at a club level is all match play, um, but the ones who make it to pro don't have the skill set. They're better. They might be better players over seventy two holes, but over eighteen holes with all the little nuances of match play, they didn't get it. So I love that. That was my favourite tournament. I mean, I wish pro golf was match play every week, but well, it, um, it really is once it gets towards the end. You yeah, know, it's the old line of. It's only interest. Stroke play is only interesting when it turns into match play. Yeah, but the gimmies and there's so many different things in the rules of match play too that you can sort of uh, use to what with fully within the etiquette and the, the spirit of the game, you can use to sort of get advantages just by rattling the other person and stuff. Yeah. Well, you 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 probably aren't old enough to remember. I can remember playing match play where you could leave the 
opponent's ball next to the hole if he putted up, you know, like stymies. No, well, uh, no stymies. No, I'm not. I'm not quite that old. <laughs> but the, uh, you could leave the if you, uh, playing you and you putted up to three inches away. I could use your ball to go in off. Oh, they couldn't mark it unless you wanted them. No, I was I was in charge of what you did with your ball. Really? Yeah. No, I don't remember that. I've that would have been. I can fun. remember doing that a couple of times. That would have been fun. Yeah. I mean, just the little things like you give. I mean, you give them a three footer on the first, and then you don't give them an eighteen incher on the second, and then you give them a four footer on the third, and then you don't give them the twelve incher on the. I mean, and then they're just they're just completely imploding. Yeah. They're like, that's what's right. wrong with this person? Like, I can't. <laughs> and their heads off somewhere else, and yeah. then you just go beat them. Um, I think that stuff's great fun. Um. Yeah, pennant golf is great. It's one of the best things about growing up, especially in Melbourne. They have it in Sydney too, but I think it's a take it a bit more seriously in Melbourne. Um, and there's some, and it, it bonds you to your club too, and it, you get to meet all the members. So you're a junior, and junior golf golfers, especially in those days, were sort of wasn't even be seen and not heard. It was like don't be seen and don't be heard. You know, they weren't really meant to be in the bar or the clubhouse or any of that. But you're right. No, there's nothing like team golf. For winning, if when you win as a team, I mean that's a great feeling, and it's different from winning by yourself. I think so much better because you can l- lose your match that day and win, and you're happy. You know, you can win that match, your match that day, and the team loses, and you're not happy, and and you're carrying the weight of a club. You know, and you'd meet all the volunt- all the club guys that all come out, and you'd have caddies who are members, and you end up meeting the whole club and the pennant players. At least in that day, I don't think it's quite the same now. You were kind of like really respected members of the club, you know, because you were representing them every Sunday and you, or oh, you beat Metro well done last week, you know, good stuff, Jeff. Um, yeah, yeah there'd be great. a few, you know, people working in offices that, you know, there'd be a bit of banter going back and forth. I'm yeah, sure. for sure. <clears throat> I'm intrigued by, um, I don't think you've talked a bit about over the years with me, with the, your amateur days. Um, talk a bit about that. I mean, you, you did a fair bit of travel um, to Britain, certainly, a couple of times as an amateur. I mean, how, how important was that and how useful did that turn out to be later on? Really big, I think. Yeah, I mean, but I finished. I got through year twelve. Mum and dad. I so I finished high school. Their rule was: we know you're probably at by this point, by the middle of high school, they they sort of knew I wasn't going to have an academic sort of career. It was going to be golf. Um, what subjects did you hate and like? Just all in passing, just going <laughs> right, in <okay>. general. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I loved PE. I loved the sport. Um, and there was, I mean, I, look, I had a good time at school, but I was never, I found it easy to pass, but I never cared about grades. I just wanted to pass. Um, so I found it relatively easy through school. By the time I sort of got towards the end of it, I realized that if I just communicated with the teachers and told them, look, I'm, and did all my work, then they wouldn't care if I didn't turn up in the afternoon and I was playing golf or something. Um, so... Once I finished high school, it sort of exploded and I kind of became a professional amateur, if you like. We had a really good setup with the Victorian Institute of Sport. Um, so we had to sort of structure. It wasn't just aimlessly sort of wandering around like some golfers seem to when they're young. Like we had structure. We had sort of Tuesday and Thursday practices and gym sessions and we had access to the what everyone's doing now. Like we were, they were sort of fourth leaders, I think, at that point. We had the psychology and the nutrition and um, – it's some good coaching as well, did you? Some really good coaching, um, access to all the good stuff, and I just played every event I could. And at the time, it's way less now, and it's one of my bugbears about what's going on in Australia sometimes. But that we, pl- I played a thirty-six hole tournament almost every weekend of the year. Like there's pennant season, which is about eight weeks long, and the rest of the time I was playing a golf tournament. And then once I was, I think when I was nineteen, I went to the UK for the first time. They the VIS 
could scratch up a little bit of funding for two or three of us to um, head over and play the sort of the summer in the UK and then hopefully get to the US and play the USAM or Western Am, um, a couple of the big ones over here. But this was pre-internet, so we had to write away to the St Andrews Links Trust for the St Andrews Links entry form. We had to write away to the RNA to get the, uh, the, the open entry form and the English Golf Union to get the Brabazon Trophy entry form. We had to get all the entry forms mailed. Which would take um, which would take two months from start yeah. to getting the entry yeah, form, yeah. and then we'd have to get it signed. We'd have to get it signed by Colin Phillips, who was the chairman of the or the boss of um, the AGU at the time, which is now Golf Australia, and then send it all back like snail mail. Um, so the hope we'd be starting this in like January, February, um, to head off sort of mid May, and we'd land we'd we'd land at Heathrow, and we'd have the Brabazon Trophy at. Um, Royal St George's and none of us were old enough to rent a car we really didn't we had enough money to get over there in a little bit but it's not that we were going to be sharing rooms and doing it who are you travelling with at this point this was Steve Allen and Jamie McCallum my first year so you wouldn't know Jamie McCallum but he was a great player and Stevie Allen's had a pretty nice career and he's still playing golf Um, so we'd catch a train to Canterbury or something and then we'd sort of somehow find a way to find a place that would rent a car to young kids and it was some dodgy brothers rental car place yeah, yeah. around the side of yeah. Canterbury and then we'd rent it someplace in a little town called Ash. Yeah, I've stayed there. Yeah. Um, and then off and we'd play that tournament and then we'd have sort of 10 days till the St Andrews Lynx Trophy and then so we'd sort of somehow find our way up by train or something like we'd find our way to St Andrews in Edinburgh and Stevie had some family in Edinburgh. He's so we'd- Scotland's Stevie Allen. Yeah. yeah. Um, on the ferry road, his uncle lived. Um, and we'd stay there for a couple of days and we'd f- find a golf, a field to hit balls in or something and, and get to the old course. Was the golf as foreign to you guys as it would be to, say, people from America? Because I think there's a fair amount of similarity in the stuff that you played growing up. Yeah, I mean- there is similarity, but I think it's all attitude. I think I wanted to like it before I got there. And maybe it's because I'd read all these books and I'd watched the Open on TV yeah. and um, just soaked in everything golf. And if you soak in everything golf, it doesn't take you very long to realise that Scotland's where it, what it's all about. Mm-hmm. It's like if you get into wine, you just you eventually you're going to realise that it's all about France and like yeah. it's just yeah. what yeah. it's all about. Yeah. I wanted to like it a lot, so that's not really a fair measure. Whereas I think a lot of Americans don't want to like it at first, mm-hmm. and then it, Eventually, everybody likes it. Yeah. Like it Tom Watson is a classic example of that. He didn't get it at all to begin with. And eventually, it was his favourite golf. Yeah. You know? And Jones tore up his scorecard at the old course the first time. And like, I mean, it's, I don't know. And I don't think every Australian was like that, but I definitely, I wanted to enjoy it. And it's the golf we grow up with is sort of a hybrid between Seaside Links and mm-hmm. Augusta, say. Yeah. Like yeah. somewhere between soft and green and hard and brown, that's Melbourne. Yeah. So I think you can go either way from Melbourne. It's such a great place to grow up from the sand belt. Yeah. You just you drift, drift one way for the soft American golf or you drift just the other way. You're sort of in the middle. Yeah. But I loved every minute of it. I mean, so we were over there for two and a half months on a shoestring budget, kids you know, traveling around with a carry bag and one little suitcase. Yeah. yeah. Trying to rent, trying to find some place that would rent us like a little chinky quento thing that was really not fit for one person, let alone three people with three golf bags. I mean, I we can, I can pack a golf, I can pack a car 
Like you, it's amazing oh, how much you can yeah, get yeah. in the car. Yeah, yeah. Laundry is always the big thing. Laundry, yeah. But when you're that age, you just turn yeah. them inside out and get yeah. going, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> it was fantastic for golf too. That was, I mean, all the coaching and all the practice and all the everything I did, a hundred percent. That was the biggest reason because I did that three years in a row. So I did the UK summer. We'd play five or six. Popped onto the continent a couple of times when we had a couple of weeks. Played in Germany and. Mm-hmm. Then get to America and I'd get back. I'd leave in May and I'd get home in September. And I'd played like a pro, kind of, you know. Um, and I was, this is, these fields were Immelman, Garcia, Rose, and a bunch of other guys, but they're the three names that stick out the most. Yeah. So we were playing against this. So we've been peers since we were kids. That was the best education by miles. Better than any lesson, better than any practice or any little tip or anything. Just travel play, learn a course in a day, play, travel, learn a course in a day, play. You don't have your own setup. You gotta, you're got you hitting balls in a – we'd hit balls in fields. Yeah. You know, you'd oh, see yeah. some yeah. open patch in Scotland. Oh, we could hit a few balls, you know. Um, you had some success as well, didn't you? I, mean, I, f- I had a couple of really good runs. I mean, I finished second at the Brabazon, which was a really – the biggest tournament, biggest stroke play it's tournament the, in England, maybe. No, the Lytham Trophy was the oh yeah, that British was the, yeah. the the Brabazon was the English stroke play championship, yeah. basically. Yeah. We never got there early enough for the Lytham Trophy. Mm. Um, that was like a week or two before we got there. Mm. I finished, I think I finished second or third at St Andrews a couple of times. Um, Justin Rose won one of those. The year he um finished fourth at the Open or whatever it was, he yeah. he won the. I right. played with him on the last two rounds at St Andrews right. a month before. Right. You know. Yeah. I never won anything in the UK, but I was—I felt I was in the mix a lot. The last couple of years I was there, I sort of—I'd kind of sussed it out and made the quarters. I think at the, the amateur. Was that how disappointing was that when you look back on it? Very, because because I mean I can relate. Yeah, <laughs> only great players losing the quarterfinals. Indeed, you, me, and Jack. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was playing great. I qualified second or third at Gallon One and Muirfield. And Sergio had qualified two, and I'd been three or something. So we were destined to meet each other in the final, and yeah. we kind of knew it. And I lost in the quarters to this kid from Wales. It was just I was playing great. It was just one of those days. Sometimes it just yeah, he makes goals. a few putts early, yeah. and I miss. I, I hit a couple of bad shots, and before you know it, you fall down with six to play. It's like how'd that happen? I'm supposed to win this week, yeah. so it didn't work out. It was disappointing, but didn't, I mean the disappointment. I don't know. Sometimes when you're a kid, I think the disappointment goes away a lot quicker. You know. Well, it's all part of development. I mean, you're always on to the next thing. Because all you see is future at that point. Yeah. I feel like the older you get, and so when you get out on tour and stuff, I think bad weekends or a bad finish or a near miss is harder to deal with than when I was a kid, you know. Yeah. I probably didn't appreciate – I mean, I knew the amateur was a massive deal, but yeah. well, it's it was, like, oh, you well. You could I'd have been here, playing here where we're sitting right now. You could have been playing in the Masters. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So. so Sergio won that one. Mm. Yeah, and then I come here. I never really uh, could go to the come to the US to play sort of Porter Cup, Western Am, USM, and I never really had any real success over here because it was usually at the end of the trip and we were pretty tired. And uh, now, I want you to tell the story of um, the time that you were in the UK when you weren't supposed to be in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> well, which yeah. is it's highly amusing to me. It's a typical amateur golf administration at its worst. So yeah, so there was this kind of rule. I think it was an RA rule about receiving funding as an amateur for travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could, there was some sort of thing that you could only play 20 tournament days 
having been funded overseas or something. Some weird sort of random rule. And the AGU decided that, no, Jeff, you're getting too much help. Um, <laughs> and it really was just aeroplane flight to get there, yeah. like two or $3,000 or something, and that was about it. It wasn't like we were getting like it is now where they've all got logos on their shirts yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And so I was supposed to get – I could go over there and play off the VIS sort of funding money and I could play three tournaments and if I wanted mm-hmm. to play any more. So that got me like Brabbers and St Andrews, the, the, the amateur – and if I wanted to play any more, which I had two or three more planned, yeah. I had to fly home, turn around, and then fly back yeah. on my own dime. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I was in breach of amateur status or something. So I was with um, Brad Lamb and Cam Percy, I think, that year maybe. Cam Percy, who's still playing on the PGA Tour. And we told them I went back. And I just didn't play the tournament in Wales. I just hid out in the room all week and – um I actually watched the U.S. Open. It was the um, Lee Jansen at, at Olympic oh, U.S. Open. Yeah, that would be what ninety eight, ninety seven or eight. Yeah, ninety eight. Um, yeah, ninety eight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just hid in my room all week, and they played the tournament, and we told them that I went back. Yeah. And then we went to the next tournament, which was like east of Scotland or something, and then said, "Yeah, I went back. Yeah, now I'm on my own dime." And then for the next month, apparently. They were having meetings trying to work out how to relinquish my amateur status, which was kind of annoying because I was about to turn pro anyway. Mm. I qualified for the US amateur at Oak Hill, the one that Hank Keeney won. And during the week, they were trying to get rid of my amateur status. So I heard. This is all hearsay. I wasn't actually there. And I never really – this was pre-internet and email and stuff. So it wasn't That says you wouldn't care that much anyway. I didn't care. That that was my last amateur tournament. And unfortunately, I'd been carrying a bag for – eight weeks he's carrying your own bag every week and these things and umbrellas and heavy and i had a, the only time in my life really i had a bad back was in that oak hill usm in whenever this was 98 and so it never it ended up being a moot point but it's just interesting that your own golf association yeah you're over there representing at the us amateur probably a realistic chance to win it one of 20 kids out of the 200 that are probably yeah. a chance to win it yeah and uh yeah, they were trying to make it harder for me, which was Was that the same trip where you got some, you know, new insight into the Scottish character where you were, I think you were in a pub in Stirling watching England play Argentina in a World Cup match? And that was 98. It must have been 98. And Argentina yeah. scored and the place went wild. <laughs> well, we were in Stirling right. staying at Ramsey McMaster's yeah. mum's house. Right. We were between tournaments because these amateur, it's not like pro golf, it's not like Thursday to Thunder, Thursday to Sunday, but sometimes there was two weeks between tournaments and we needed, and we sort of, we'd always find somewhere to stay. Yeah. I mean, everyone in Australia has got some sort of connection to someone in Scotland. Yeah. And so we were staying with Ramsey's relatives and we just went down and watched Argentina, England (laughs) in Scotland. And I, you just, you just assume that I will, I mean, I know they don't really like each other, but like, you want England to win if you're Scotland over Argentina. And when Beckham got red carded, he tripped Ortega over yeah, yeah. and he got red carded. The place just went nuts. Um, and I'm like, <laughs> I thought they were, initially, I thought initially they're going nuts because he got red carded, like in a negative way. But no, they were pumped and yeah. happy. And then I Argentina should, I shouldn't wins. be proud of this, but I am. <laughs> they're out on the streets having parties just because they, they don't yeah. care if Scotland wins or loses. No. It's irrelevant. They just want England to lose. Well, it's the old um, line that we support two teams, Scotland and whoever's playing England. Yeah. yeah. And I found that really kind of cool so i i'd never really identified dad was born in england mm. 
but with Scottish hair. I mean, Ogilvy's very well, Scottish. Where I'm from, where I live now, Kerry Muir and Angus is there's Ogilvy's. I've sh- I've sent you the signs with the names on them. You know, Ogilvy's are everywhere. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the oldest names in Scotland. It's been yeah, around for a while. Absolutely. One of the old clans. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. got we've got our tartan and our yeah. dress tartan and our war tartan and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, and Dad had some of that growing up, so he identified to use the modern mm-hmm. um, vernacular. He he would have. Thought of himself as Scottish, even though yeah, he, he did a bit. He grew up in Cambridgeshire, yeah. which is very English. Yeah. But his his father, I think, was born in Scotland, and then it was over with Scotland. Yeah, for him, we're very lily yeah. white. Yeah. He was always pleased to see me, your dad. Yeah, yeah. So I definitely, at that moment, the Argentina England game, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna choose the Scotland side of this argument. I like this. This is kind of yeah. cool. I mean, it was fr- it was bizarre that this thousands of years old rivalry is still that oh, strong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, incredible. It, it, it's not, I mean, I shouldn't be proud of it, but because, but it's in me. There's no, you just can't deny it. Yeah. So, it's a, um, I mean, I'm, I always say, we talk about Scottish independence. I always say that the, the sooner we give England independence, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's friendly mostly, but when you're in the pub, it isn't. Um, no. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. So, so did all of that, Make your decision on where to play when you did turn pro easier to you know you went to Europe first. I don't know about easier. It certainly made it when I got to Europe easier because I understood where I was going. Mm. But it was just what we did at the time. Yeah, America it, was just it was of, the route for most Aussies, wasn't it? Yeah. America was a was a bridge too far. Mm. It was a the US is a very foreign country. Well, it's way less foreign now because again with the globalization and the internet, we all know everything. But yeah. Getting to America through Britain and Europe made more sense, yeah. you know, because the cultures are more similar and every golfer before us, everyone outside of Steve Elkington, probably, who came to college. Bruce Devlin. Bruce Devlin. Early, yeah. um, Bruce Compton. Went through Europe. Norman. Yeah. I mean, everyone. We, there was 15, 20 Australian players playing in Europe when I was turning pro, like Roger Davis and Peter O'Malley and Peter Senior and yeah. Peter Lonard and... Um, Steve Allen, who I'd been traveling with a couple of years before, he'd been there for two years. Mm-hmm. So it was just that was the only thing I was ever going to do. So after the USM in 98, I entered pre-Q1. So I went straight from Rochester, New York to England, entered pre-Q1, which was the first stage of the European Tour School. That, uh, I played at Chart Hills in East Sussex, I guess, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was 10, 120 for 10. So it was a tough... Thing, um, but if you missed it, you could go to pre Q two yeah, yeah, for the, another hundred and twenty. So you got mm. two cracks at a really hard qualifier. It was a bit like the open qualifier. Mm, it was yeah. the same sort of numbers, same sort of field, yeah. kind of. Oh, not quite this quality of field, but it was a tough one. And I luckily I got through, played really well. I don't know where I finished, but I finished in the top ten. And so then I could go to San Rocky and went to the to Spain. So, you know the feeling when your mate's golf ball flies past yours. Or when you're on the green in regulation, but he holds it from the bunker. At Drummond Golf, we get it. That's why we have our lowest price guarantee. As Australia's biggest, you can count on our massive buying power for the lowest prices in golf. But if you do happen to find a lower advertised price, we'll beat it. The Drummond Golf lowest price guarantee. Unbeatable. Conditions apply. Who were the great players that you played with then? Did you play with the Savvies and... Faldos and Woozies and in Europe, I played with Monty was the most impressive. 
um, I play with him in Scandinavian Masters. I shot like 62, I think, on Friday or 63 or something and got in the last group on – because he was always in the last group. Yeah. Like, it's just always. Mm-hmm. On Saturday, I played with him in the last group at Malmo at Barzabak. Yep. Um, and he ended up winning the tournament. I finished second or third. That was – he was the most impressive. Darren, I mean, I played with Tiger in Europe at um, in Hamburg. I played with – Terrible course. Good Carton, Yeah. yeah. Um, great field though. I mean, mm. I played with Darren Clark and Tiger in the last round on Sunday, and Westwood ended up shooting sixty four on Sunday and winning, which she was prone to do yeah, quite often I was too. There for that. So I played with all of them. Monty was the best player I played with, I think, at that time. But Seve was the best. I played with Seve at the Volvo Masters at Soto Grande, and that must have been two thousand. He was getting towards the end then, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, I'm thinking back. It's like amazing. He was in the Volvo Masters at that point, but he must have had a couple of good weeks that week because it was what top sixty or something. Make Volvo Masters, yeah, yeah. and that was the best because I'd watched. He he played a lot my two years, yeah. and he was always in the players' lounge. He was always on the chipping green and always on the range, and it didn't matter. You just couldn't not watch him. Mm. You didn't matter how into your practice you were. If Sevi turned up, you were not practicing really anymore. You were going through the motions and watching like Except the, the chipping green. My goodness, incredible! And then, then when Jose would come too, I love the ball on the chipping green. He was almost more impressive. But you'd watch them. Sevi was my favourite draw. Um, I used to hit balls to Sandy Lyle a lot. Sandy Lyle, I got in this sort of. I was pretty dedicated at this point, and I was hitting a lot of balls. And Sandy would be uh, just just a baffle me. He used to hit balls with a rain jacket, not yeah. zipped up. I know. Yeah. I don't know how you play golf like that. Um, and I got quite friendly with Sandy there for a couple of years because he 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 respected. There's a lot of that old school pro who respects the guy, I and mean, it still happens now. But they respect the guy who's always on the range, mm. like doing the hard They'll yards. Give you some time. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So he used to, you'd, you'd go tuck up in the corner with Sandy, and he'd be trying to give you lessons, and you'd yeah. be giving him lessons, hitting balls in the afternoon in Holland or something. Like it was. Great time. European tour was great fun. Mm. So why um, was it, was America always the aim for you then? I mean, you didn't hang around in Europe that long. I guess I assumed that I'd like to play there one day, to, to play in the US one day, but I finished top three on the Australian Order of Merit. Must have been the 99-2000 sort of season. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the first three who wanted to go got exempt to the final stage of the USQ school from our order of merit, which was a fantastic exemption. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't easy to finish top three on the order of merit no. at that point because there was a lot of good tournaments and you'd have some good players. And But I had a couple of good weeks and I'd finished second, I think, at the Johnny Walker, which was the biggest money event, which really helped and yeah. I had a pretty good season. So I had the opportunity to go to the final Q school at uh, – in Palm Springs, and I'm like, well, you have to do that. I've got the chance. It's not like I'd really. So it just came along. It just came yeah, along. Yeah. It was an opportunity. It's like, oh, I'll go and play yeah, that. Yeah. And I was very fortunate in that I didn't care if I made it or missed. Mm. Not care is the wrong word. Yeah. So it's maybe the best way to be, of course. Yeah. yeah. Care isn't the right word. I I didn't need it. Mm-hmm. This would be nice, but this was when Europe had already started starting. They'd started the 2001 season straight after the Volvo Masters. They'd started doing sort of the right, yeah. the wraparound yeah. thing. And I'd played the Johnny Walker again in Thailand and finished second to Tiger and made – so that was a European tour event. And so I'd made – for the 2001 season in Europe, I'd already kept my card before yeah. I went to the Q school for the 2001 season in the US. Yeah. 
So I wasn't only going there knowing I was exempt in Europe the next year and I was exempted I was exempt in Europe for two years effectively. Mm-hmm. So I went there knowing it doesn't matter if I miss because I've got two years in Europe. Mm-hmm. Like I wanted to make it, but I didn't really mind if I didn't because oh well I'll just go play Europe. I was having a good time. The opportunity presented and I was just happened to be this was two weeks after the Johnny Walker. I was I was in a sweet spot of form. I was playing really well and you've just had a whole weekend playing with Tiger and mm-hmm. Sort of a big time event, and now you get to a Q school, and you just feel like you, yeah. you're in a better place than these kids who have yeah. haven't played a tournament for twelve months, and you know it's it's an unfair sort of situation. I just took advantage of it, and I played really well. Steve Allen actually won that Q school. Did he? Well, here's a hypothetical for you. I mean, had you not made it through that, would you have been as good as quick staying in Europe? I think I was just starting to play really well. It mm. it all happened. I was so lucky. It happened all at the right time. I was in great form. This couple of years of hitting balls on the range with people like Sandy and like it was fine. It was paying dividends. Well, that playing. sounds like that was exactly the right thing to do at that point. But you, another two years of it would have had the same amount of benefit, maybe. Maybe it's all. Yeah. There's a lot of timing in golf because yeah, yeah. form comes and goes. Not through your own choice, you know. You're yeah. always on this up and down, yeah. up and down, up and down, and you just want the ups to be when the important stuff is. Mm. And I know it's important to win majors and big tournaments, but the most important parts of your life is you want to be informed when you go to Q schools because that, mm. yeah, they're really well. It's another year life changing yeah. sort of weeks. Um, I don't know. I was starting to get comfortable in Europe. I loved Europe. Europe, I. In some ways, I would have been better, I think, if I'd played a few more years in Europe because you learn more about being a professional golfer in Europe because you got different – this was back – this is pre-Euro too, so it's different currencies, different cultures, mm-hmm. an unbelievable assortment of different sorts of golf courses, like oh. variety, whereas the US is a very same mm-hmm. – we're spoilt because it's the same rakes and the same sand and the same grass and the mm-hmm. same thing every week, but you're also getting hurt by that because you're not learning to adapt. So I think I would have been maybe a bit more rounded. I mean, I'd been playing competitive stroke play golf tournaments since I was 14 by this point. So I had a lot of rounds under my belt. So I was a bit seasoned anyway, but a couple more years in Europe wouldn't have hurt. But this sort of window of opportunity, the access, I might not have had as easy a time getting on the tour in the US if it hadn't all just lined up like this. Yeah. And I was still playing well, and I went to Tucson was the first tournament. I finished third, and a few weeks later at the Honda, I finished second. And like within a three month period, I'd gone from European tour quite happy to kept my card in the US mm-hmm. and like feeling really comfortable. And that was a really important three months, I guess. Yeah, from that Johnny Walker two weeks before the Q school, or from the yeah two weeks before the Q school to the Honda Classic, it was like. It all changed a lot, and all of a sudden you start making real money, and it's like, oh, I actually like it. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, actually yeah, pretty yeah, good. Yeah. I can imagine, yeah. Uh, j- just to change tack a little bit, um, the, you're well known for your interest in course architecture. Where, where did that start, and and how did it developed over the years? Did, was it seeing bad courses help even more than seeing good ones sometimes? Well, I think, or well, one, I was I just frothed on everything golf. Like I was just, it didn't matter. Like and I'd read all these books, and you hear, you read. Jones about tearing up his scorecard at the old course and all these things and I'd been to the old course a bit and so I just think it's if I just loved everything about the sport and that was just one of the things but growing up next door to Royal Melbourne and Victoria 
I just thought that was normal. Like, yeah, I was going to say, you, you, you wouldn't appreciate it to start. No, not at all. Yeah. I mean, everyone says this is one of the best courses in the world and oh, we're so lucky and we're so spoiled. But when you're this little country down there in Australia, you really don't, you watch, you see all these green places in the US and yeah. you think, wow, well, it can't be one of the best courses yeah. in the world. They're just kind of yeah. like being nice to us, you know. But it was true. Everywhere I went, the courses were worse and like miles worse. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, know? yeah. Um, and especially when you start playing pro golf. I mean, amateur golf, at least the amateur stuff in the UK, you're playing all the, you're playing the open rotor and yeah. in the US, we play the USM at Oak Hill. And so, I mean, we're playing great courses and then you turn pro and you're not going to those anymore. And it was just, I don't know, not disappointment, but it was everywhere I went wasn't as good as the place that I was playing at 4.30 every afternoon when I was a kid. It's just not even close. Did that make it easier for you or harder, though? I mean, mentally, you could you could get kind of pissed off with it, or was it easier because the courses were not as difficult? I don't know about as difficult. It was just it. there was so much less to the challenge. Um, so it made it – well, it made it difficult because I'd be complaining that oh, I was the bunker there yeah, and this hole's yeah, ridiculous. Listen to Mike Clayton. What, yeah. yeah. Why are we playing here? It just gradually the architecture thing, and it took me. It gradually dawned on me that the the enjoyment of my day was, and golf was, incredibly influenced by where I was doing it, and the course I was doing it on. See, that can hurt you a little bit. I think if you, if you let it fester too much, if shooting low scores is the requirement for your job, yeah, mm. because you need to be engaged. Mm, yeah. Yeah, you should complain about it in the bar afterwards. But, yeah. yeah. I don't think it hurt me that much. I mean, it, it probably got me whining on the golf course a few times because you do see some crazy stuff in tour golf. You play, you see some crazy holes and some weird stuff. I remember seeing the ball bounce out of that water hazard at Kron in Switzerland oh, because yeah. it's like a little kiddie swimming pool. It's really shallow with yeah, a concrete cool. bottom and yeah. ball. Someone would fly it in the water and it would bounce out because it would hit the it's concrete right. under the bottom <laughs> stuff like that. It's just like you just, and I've come from Royal Melbourne. It's like yeah, incredible. Yeah. I don't know. And then hanging out with Clates. Clates started when Clates turned up to uh, Victoria Golf Club. This is just kind of as I was turning pro. He turned up and they got the deal to sort of do a bit of a master plan and do a little bit of work. Yeah, and yeah. they got the old pictures from Vic and sort of restored a couple of bunkers. And he's never backward in coming forward about sort of sort of verbalizing what he thinks of a golf course and how it should be and if it's wrong. And I didn't understand any of it at the start, but he sort of piqued my interest and he explained a little bit. And so then he says, oh, I'll read this book. And so I read The Spirit of St. Andrews and Mackenzie. And then I'm like, this is really cool. And then you look at the old course a little bit differently. I mean, I'd already looked – I, as I said, I wanted to love that stuff before I got there. So I was already playing the old course the first time, looking at it from why is this so revered so I was already looking to see why. Mm. So I was looking for it as opposed to going, I'm, I want to enjoy this golf course. I was looking to why is this yeah. so special yeah. and mm. how do the bunkers have such a magnetic quality and why do I just keep shooting 74? Why can't I shoot 65? And you start trying to shoot 65 and then you shoot 80 and like it yeah. just started all make it just started making gradually it just the yeah. picture became it was like out of focus and gradually the picture just became. Yeah. I mean, I think clear. one of the greatest things about Lynx golf is that you can have. Shot and you can and you watch it bounce, 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 and you and you know that eight seconds from now it's going to be in that bunker over there. Mm -hmm. You know that's, that's wonderful. I think, and you know it at contact. Yeah, it might take fourteen seconds for the ball to get in the bunker, but as soon as you make contact, you're like, yeah. oh no, that's in the bunker. Yeah, you just know, and the yeah. bunker's as big as a table. That's it. Yeah, I just as it's really is. It's like it was. It's out of focus, and it just gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And and once you once it clicks, golf course architect like basic how it should be. I mean, you can argue about aesthetics and how it's supposed to look, but 
where things should be and how golf mm. works best, it becomes really obvious once you start looking. Yeah. The, the, the best golf courses all do the same principles. Mm. They just do. Mm. And the bad ones all get it wrong. You know, they might have perfect grass and it might look immaculate from the clubhouse yeah. and you look yeah. out over there, but the, the course just leaves you wanting. You know, good shots get penalised, yeah. bad shots get rewarded. Mm. Um, and just once it becomes clear, you just – all you want to do is – help people see that because mm. golf would be a better game if every course made you play like the old course or yeah. Royal Melbourne or Augusta or mm. Shinnecock or I mean there's hundreds of incredibly great courses but they just there's so many that are so far off the mark that it just gets frustrating yeah I mean uh, do you want to name names a little bit I mean what, what's the good what? ones bad ones yeah well I mentioned one in Switzerland that's not that great no um, that's true that's not trying to be great <laughs> but, the, though. but the view's fantastic maybe the best <laughs> venue for golf oh. anywhere in the world no I'm not going to pick any bad ones but I mean it's just as I said they they generally they dumb the test down so there's less depth to it it's more just hit it long and straight mm. hit it on the green and make a putt yeah. as opposed to well if you want to hit this fairway it really probably should be drifting left to right to keep it in the right place, and then your second shot really should be drawing to keep it on. To be able to get it close to that pin, you really have to be able to hit a fade off the tee and a draw in the second shot. And if you if it goes a bit high, it's not going to bounce right. I mean, it just adds more depth. It's like playing snooker on a full-size table. All of a sudden, the margins are finer yeah. and the skill level just oh. is so much higher. Yeah. And I sort of thought of myself as someone who wanted to be that sort of golfer who could do all or do it all. So I liked the courses that made me do that. And when I could do that, let me stand out. Now, you just notice, especially when you play competitive golf on a course, irrelevant of the score to par, the best players, the, the, the leaderboard and the finishing results would always look the best on the best courses. You play average courses and, and anyone in the field seems to be able to pop up and it's a bit more random. Yeah. But you go to the old course, it's only the good players at the end. It just is. Mm -hmm. It's true. Um, and the the Masters does it the best. I mean, because you've got side slopes and down slope. You've got to hit draws when the ball's below your feet. You've got to hit fades when the ball's above your feet. Mm -hmm. you really got to be in the right place. You've got to miss things and, and chipping around the green. You've got to hit some that don't have any spin. You've got to hit some that have a lot of spin. And these are things that are really high-level stuff that makes golf so good, the best courses do that. Well, I mean, and I just think golf is better when it it makes you want to be a better golfer. I mean, I, the, one of the greatest things, I mean, I'll take this to my grave, it, it was watching Tiger at the last President's Cup at Royal Melbourne. Mm. I mean, he was miles better than everybody else on that golf course. It was incredible, wasn't it? It was oh. a masterclass, and, yeah. and you could see how engaged he was. Yeah. I mean, this made the best golfer of the last 30 years, maybe the best golfer ever when he was playing his best. He was so into it, so into working it out and say so he'll hit it to 25 feet over there on the one hole because that's the right shot. Yeah. And then the next hole, he can hit it close so no one else does because he drives it in the right place and just put on a clinic. Oh, um, and who doesn't want to watch that? Well, I can know, the best of all time, yeah. put on a clinic around a course that you kind of need to be the best of all time to to be able – only Tiger could put on a clinic. No one else could. No, he I mean, was light years better than everybody else on that course. It was fantastic, yeah. And to see – the best get engaged like that. That's what it does. It just elevates. It just levels everything up. It just elevates the whole thing. Yeah. Inevitably, we, we, we have to talk about winged foot. How often do, does that come up in conversation? with you? Well, when I'm talking to people like you, it comes up all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it comes up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a fun story to tell. I mean, I, you do a 
speak at the odd dinner and corporate event, and that's what people want to. I mean, it's it's an incredible finish. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was an amazing sort of sequence of events. I mean, I'd been playing really well. I won the match play earlier in the year. I was sort of sort of establishing myself in the sort of top 10, 15 in the world. I was sort of one of the guys who was – I thought I had a chance every week. Yeah. Had played the last couple of majors pretty well. I think I finished top five or six at the old course and at uh, Baltus Roll, sort of the Open and the PGA in 05. Mm. So I was just starting to sort of yeah. think, oh, I can g- sort of get up to the pointy end of these majors yeah. a little bit. Finished like 15th or 16th at the Masters that year. So I was – feeling it in the majors starting to get there thinking well i'm one of these people if i could, if it all the stars all line up but i didn't really go there thinking yeah. but is there a difference between the majors and everything oh else? absolutely yeah, yeah. define it then you have to be i don't know i think you feel like you have to be built a certain way or have one it's a tougher test um like i was saying before there's more depth to the test and you've got to have more than just hit it straight and hold a lot of parts You've got to, it's not just hitting it in the right place, it's hitting it the right way in the right place, generally, a little bit more mm. because you're going to these great courses. But the, the mental thing, I mean, Nicholas said it the best. I mean, it's a little different now. There seems to be more and more sort of belief seems to have been more, is more understood now, like that it's more important. But the, it always felt like in the majors, they were the easier ones to do well in because most of the field, they're trying too hard. They're uncomfortable in that situation and there's about five guys, you know, if I get in front of those five, if I beat those five, I'm winning. Mm. It just felt like that. So there is a difference. Harder to win probably. Well, I don't know. Well, different, yeah, that's different. That's a good debate actually. Yeah. Different. Um, a lot of guys rule themselves out pretty much straight from uh, the – Straight at the start, right? Yeah. Like, I'm not so, Easier to win is the wrong way to say it, but you have to be built the right way mm. and I don't know if you can do anything about that or you're just built that way. I don't know. Did you think of yourself differently after you won it than you did before? No. Other people did. Mm. I was a little surprised. Not surprised because of the way it happened. I played really well during the week. was sort of in there or thereabouts all week and then everything sort of worked out for me. On I was playing really well on Sunday. I think I was in front. I was the one in front after about six holes and then sort of was letting it sort of drift away and then part the last four holes and everybody else sort of fell in a mess, which is par in the last four holes at Wingfoot's probably like playing a normal course in two under on the last four holes. Yeah. So I played I finished off really well and made a great up and down the last and Phil and Monty sort of made a mess of the last hole. They weren't the only two though. No, everybody did. Yeah. Was, there was no one in the last I mean, sixteen or twenty players who get Harrington and Furick and you know, there was a few <laughs> in with a chance, you know. Yeah, so it, it worked out really well. Most of the week, I'm like, this is great. I'm in the mix. I'm in the last few groups in a major. And the US Open, for whatever reason, feels like the biggest one because it's just – it's so appropriate for America. It's just big and it's loud and it's – But it's not the one that I would have picked you to win. No, not at the time. Mm-hmm. It would have been the last one I would have picked because mm-hmm. I wasn't the straightest hitter probably no, at the time. I mean, yeah. But – in hindsight, that was still in the really true traditional narrow US Open setups. Yeah. So everybody was missing fairways. Everybody I mean, misses look fairways. Look at the way Phil played. I mean, mm-hmm. he was all over the shop. You know. um, everybody misses fairways. So, and my short game was outrageous at the time. And like you said, my putting was pretty good. So I just loved the bigger the, not the bigger the moment, but the more, probably the bigger the, the more the pressure, the more, the more important it was, it seemed to get me out of my head 
and more where I should have always should always be. Hmm. Like my problem was Thursday, Friday at a smaller tournament. Like, because yeah, I wasn't getting up for it. into yeah. it enough. That's why the match play was great because you're into it on the first hole. Yeah. It's like, well, he hits it to four feet in the first hole. Well, you better hit it close. Yeah. Like, you got to make birdie. You know, you have to make birdie before you hit your second shot. Mm. Whereas on Thursday at a normal tournament, yeah. like you're just hoping to play well. In the midst of all the, you know, the last hour and a half of whatever at, at Winged Foot, did you? Are you? Do you have time to sort of take a breath and have a look around and think, man, how good is this? Or is it just you're so into? Yeah, at the time, I mean. That was my happiest place was the big moment. Not the big moment, the big atmosphere and the big situation. I loved it. I mean, nervous before I was I was never very good. I don't think anybody's very good at the morning and the mm. the like that three o'clock tea time and yeah. you end up waking up you want to sleep till ten but you wake up at six and yeah. that's an uncomfortable but I think everybody's pretty uncomfortable mm. that's show. But once I got on the golf course I was always happy. And the closer I got to the end, I just loved the challenge of the pressure and the spot i just i like competing i guess it's the competition more than the golf at that point um i don't know i just enjoyed that and i just it's i've just never really liked getting beaten by somebody so it's less about the us open i just i just i'm better than you today yeah it's not about better overall it's just like i just want to beat you today because i'm it's like you're running a race against your friend or something when you're a kid yeah I'll beat you to the corner. You're just not going to let him win. Like, it doesn't matter. And yeah. it's determination rather than who runs the fastest that's almost. Right. Yeah. And that situa- those situa- that situation seemed to get that out of me better. When you hold the putt on 18, did you think that's a playoff at best? Playoff at best. When I was yeah. over the putt, when I was sort of circling the putt and reading it and stuff, I'm thinking, well, I'll- all the things that go through your head. I'm, this is the 18-hole US Open playoff was still in, so I'm yeah. now going to have to change it. And when you used to register for the US Open, you'd get a Monday ticket, and you always thought it was weird. Yeah, You'd get right. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, yeah. Sunday, and there was a Monday just in case there was a playoff. Mm. And so this all sort of flashed through my head, oh, playoff, this could be a playoff. Everyone's bogeying the last, like I'm a chance, because I make this and Phil's got to par the last to win. Um, and when I walked off, I walked off thinking it's a coin toss whether I lose by a shot or I'm in a playoff. It never entered my head that I was going to win that yeah, day. Yeah. Or walking off 18. Earlier in the day, I maybe thought I was yeah, going to win. Yeah. But walking off the 18th, it's like, oh, well, that's good finish. I was patting myself on the back. I'd finished off really nicely. Good week. Well yeah. done. Wow, you might make a playoff. And then in about a five-minute sequence of events, all of a sudden it went from like might make a playoff to I can only win this. It was now, extraordinary. It was amazing. Yeah, it was yeah. incredible. So what, did, how aware were you of what Monty had done? I wasn't aware. He, he was, was in front, front of us. He was in front. And 18 at Wingfoot's a bit of a dog leg. Yeah. So you couldn't really see. We saw him hit his second shot. And Monty's body language always kind of looked negative. Mm. <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah, true. Sort of looking at his feet, sort of yeah. moping along. Yeah. You know? He wasn't one of those. Mm. Like Poulter, you can tell from three fairways away. He struts. What score he's on, right? Yeah. And a lot of, most guys are like that. Yeah. You couldn't tell with Monty. So he just hits his shot, puts his head down. And to be honest, I wasn't really paying attention. I was just. The 18th hole at Wingfoot's a hard fairway to hit, and I was just pretty nervous at that point. I just wanted to hit a good drive, but I had no idea until we got to the green and the scoreboard was on the side of the green, and we figured we'd seen him miss a putt and there was a groan, so we figured he'd made bogey. So I was walking up to the green thinking I was on the same score as him. He'd finished at five, I was at five, and Phil was at four on the tee. I figured that he was on five. It wasn't until we got up to the 18th green that, um, oh, wow. He finished. He made. He made double. Yeah. Now I've got to get this up and down, right? Because yeah. I can finish second on my own here at worst. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Even at the time hitting the pitch shot, I was like, "This is up and down for second on my own, mm-hmm. and maybe a playoff." Mm-hmm. Do you think all that 
that thought process helped? Would it have um, made it harder if you thought, well, I've got to get, if I get up and down here, I win? There's definitely a difference. Like if you're the last group and you know you have to, you know what you have to do, there's definitely is a difference, but I don't know if it's any easier or harder. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I mean, it, no, nothing's easy. I'm just, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I didn't have that opportunity. I haven't, didn't have that opportunity ever to like, to have an up and down or a two putt from 40 feet or a six footer. I mean, I did it in other tournaments, but not in a major, so I don't know. But I was always, luckily, and I said, I, this has got nothing to do with practice or anything that I ever did. I was always a better putter and chipper the bigger the putt or the chip. Because you engaged you. Because it engaged me, yeah. We used to do these skills tests as kids. The sports science had started taking over and you'd do these skills tests and wedges to this target and you would have a score out of 100 or something. I mean, I'd finish last, but I'd beat them every weekend at the tournament. I bet you were a hopeless practice round player, weren't you? Hopeless, still to this day. It's actually counterproductive to play a practice round for me unless someone wants to come and play for 50 and, like, let's get competitive. Yeah. Which you can't do anymore because everybody's hitting 17 chips and caking their track man out onto the course and stuff. But, yeah, I... I needed to be engaged. I just loved that. That was the point. Isn't that the point? The point is to yeah. be well, challenged. I, I mean, peaked there, you know, that, that would be, you know, you look at your career, that's obviously it's the biggest thing you did. Mm-hmm. You didn't do it again. Is that a source of some regret? A little bit, yeah. I sort of, it's it's that lack of engagement, like you just said. I would go off on tangents and, if I only ever played last rounds at tournaments, I would have always played well, you know. But for whatever reason, you give me two weeks off and I'll just go try different stuff and yeah. maybe get bored and not being – it's just not being engaged. It's not – it doesn't matter where the ball goes and so you start thinking about random stuff and then I'd get to the tournament on the Thursday and it would take me till Saturday to get my game back. Yeah, There would be the tournament rounds where I would find my form, not – the range. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to diminish the no, 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 no. Did because it's pretty impressive, but yeah. Yeah, I sh- I feel like as I said because I feel like I had the the wherewithal or the the ability on the Sunday, I just sort of couldn't stay in form for long enough, you know, because I would I don't know. Yeah, yeah, not lose interest, but I needed the focus. Once you've had there's a little bit you see it a little bit with Brooks. I'm not comparing myself to Brooks in any way. His yeah. best is like yeah. infinitely better than mine. Yeah. But once he won that first major, it seemed like if it wasn't Sunday at a major, he just couldn't do yeah. it. Like he just no interest, yeah. you know, like it's just his – he wanted to be good, but he just couldn't. Yeah. It, to me, it's similar. And there's lots of guys. Like, I mean, look at like Lee Jansen, you know, like unless it was a major or the Players' Championship or yeah. something, he didn't yeah. – it didn't sort of work yeah. out. And there's a lot of guys like that. Mm-hmm. And it is an engagement thing. No, there's no regrets. I mean, look, there's still time. Well, well, exactly. Um, no, I was just going to, that was my next question was, you know, you're you're getting into playing more and you've been reasonably successful given where you're coming from mm-hmm. you know, the last few months. What What is motivation? What motivation do you have now? And what what's driving you into doing that? You still want to play, obviously. Yeah, I want the moment. Like, it's the moment. I mean, because you can play golf. Tour golf and the tour is probably not the best version of golf, not the most enjoyable version of golf. Just going to go play with your friends and mm. playing for 50 bucks and having a beer afterwards. I mean, that's fun, you know, mm. getting really competitive but in a loose, fun yeah. way yeah. and bantering and chirping on each other or something. Yeah. That, that to me is yeah. like perfect golf. 
tour golf, I could take or leave a little bit, but the moment, like you need to play tour golf to get the rise out, to get that moment, you know, yeah. and it's the moment that I would miss. So if I could, I'd like to, it'd be great to have that again a few times, you know. It doesn't even matter. It could be a small tournament, big tournament, doesn't matter. I'd love to get back and play some more majors and play some big stuff and get in and getting in the mix because to me, it's less about the trophy on your shelf. It's more about the fun, the most fun I've ever had are those times, you know, coming down the stretch in the match play, coming down the stretch in the the US Open or any big tournaments. And when you're in those last two or three groups and it's all on and there's three guys tied and you've got a really tough 17th hole and you just hit that tee shot, it's me. That's mm. it. That the moment, it's the drug for me is the moment, is the pressure and the situation, not really the prize. Mm. So I miss that. So if I can get, that's the dopamine rush for me is the, have you got any specifics for what lies ahead? Or is it just, let's see how good I can get, sort of thing? Yeah. I mean, I think I've, in a lot of ways, I'd be way better than I was before. As I said, I learned a little bit about the tangents I used to get myself off onto and sort of trying weird stuff and not weird stuff. And probably from the outside looking in, it looks like, oh, you've never worked on anything. But like, yeah. I don't know. It's an engagement thing. In a lot of ways, I'd be a better golfer now than I was before. The putting isn't where it was in the. 15 years ago, well, but everything else- not doing it, I think. That's yeah. probably just not doing it. Everything else is really good. I, I've i had a fun time over the last, well, my whole life, sort of playing around, finding my best way. I mean, the golf swing- well, You've done a good job of using your celebrity in Australia. I mean, you've, there have been events that have probably happened, more likely to happen, because you've the, your name's been attached. Yeah, it's been yeah. great to be down there. Yeah. I mean, I've been the only, I guess, high-profile sort of major level- golfer floating around regularly in Australia. There's not many Australian men have won majors. There's only about a dozen. It depends if you get into the walk to Travis count as an Australian or not. You're not getting no, that. but if like <laughs> if uh I mean if if things had gone different for Greg and he'd been floating around or Finchie <clears throat> was floating around Australia or <clears throat> Jason or Adam or Cam yeah. now or like in Australia more often, I mean they would have got it. But I was the major winner in Australia like yeah. for the last few years and like yeah. it was good. It's been great. Yeah, I feel like my golf is it's the journey to work out the golf swing. Not, It becomes apparent after a while, hopefully it becomes apparent, that it's you're not trying to work out the golf swing, you're trying to work out yourself and how you can do it the best. Just this sort of lifelong pursuit to how simple can I, how can I get this down to one simple thing that yeah. if I sort of do or think, I'll be good every day. And if I can't get it down to one, can I get it down to two? I can't get it down to two. Can I get it down to three? Well, like you-, you see, most the guys who are really struggling, they're on seventy-four theories every swing. Whereas Hogan was on one, you know, and Monty was on one, and DJ's on one. Yeah. It's not even one thing. It's like a how simple can I make this? Mm. Because it's so fun when I don't golf is so fun when you don't have to think about the golf swing. Yeah, and, and when you're playing great, you don't think about anything. And that's the most fun. Yeah, the least fun is thinking about. 18 different things in your swing and just doing it, just scratching and clawing and trying to find something that works. Yeah. And you feel like you can get stuck in that pattern for years. I mean, most golfers play the whole life like that. Mm. But the, the freedom and the liberation to f- get to that point where it's just walk up and hit it, I'll never stop trying to do that. And I'm way closer to that now. I mean, there's, I'm a long way from like having one simple unifying theory to my golf swing, but it's a fun thing to pursue you know or to aim at yeah uh, last few minutes of this I, i've got to we've got to get through the compulsory live golf question and compulsory 
ball rollback questions. So um, you can take them in whatever order you like. Um, Liv, I think, is interesting. Um, I think the PGA Tour has needed legitimate competition. Mm. I think they've been a l- maybe not even intentionally, but they've become a bully a little bit mm-hmm. through their own just natural success. They're very, very good at what they do. I mean, I'm a PGA Tour fan. I mean, I've benefited. It's an incredible thing that they do, and their product is so good that everybody wants to sponsor it and everybody wants to have a tournament, and there's only so many weeks in the year. They're a victim of their own greatness yeah. in a way. But this Liv has shown that they've doubled the prize money in a 12-month period. In less than 12 months, they doubled the prize money just through the threat of it, which is good for professional golfers. And it's good for golf because there's so many more eyes just on it and so many more DJs talking about it on the radio and it's on TV and it's like all of a sudden pro golf, everyone's fighting over pro golf. That's good for golf because it's putting it higher up the, mm. the newsreel. So that aspect of it I like. I think competition is healthy. I don't – it's unfolded in a really untidy way um, and it's a shame that it's sort of a bit split at the moment. But How do you think your boyhood hero is going to come out of this at the end? I mean, it's not going to – I don't think it's going to end well for Greg. Unfortunately, he doesn't – History's I, not going to be kind to him, put it that way. It doesn't seem that way. He's, I think sometimes you wish he would run it through his head before he said it and then <laughs> then do I really want to say it, you know? I understand. And the the irony of all this is the PGA Tour is shaping up to be exactly what he suggested 25, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So he was right. Yeah. Probably. And Phil as well. I mean, a lot of what Phil yeah, was- absolutely. I mean, Norman, what was it, 20 or 30 years ago came out and said, we need a list, a, a, a pile of elevated tournaments with the top 50 in the world. I mean, where are we now? We're there. We're yeah. what he suggested. Yeah. And I think he got a little bit bent out of shape and probably is a very stu- – I mean, the reason he got so good is because you can't get this good unless you're a stubborn sort of person. Mm. I mean, you can't be good at golf unless you're stubborn. Yeah. Like, I'm going to work this out. I'm going to work this out. Yeah. You know? So I think that sort of clouded his judgment a little bit. But it's sad that the PGA Tour is ending up with what he said was the right way to go mm. and he's ended up on the side which doesn't seem like it's going to win. But it's not about winning or losing – I mean, that, that, they got a right good kicking in the arbitration thing with the European Tour. Yeah, I don't understand that. I think, I mean, if I was trying to be a legitimate competitor to get the best players in the world, I, w- I would have done it a bit more of a sneak attack and I would have gone from underneath and I would have done I, the Asian Tour and I would have made the Asian, the Asian Tour. tour and just and, five years of that. You know. And have gradually make those really, really big tournaments at PGA Tour level and then gradually along the way saying, oh, we might put an elevated series on our Asian tour and then off you go. Like, And, and all of a sudden it would have been, oh, there's two real choices or three real choices with Europe, but like maybe there's two real choices. We'll see. It's not cool to see DJ and Brooks and Cam and Waco and Louie and all that not be able to play PGA Tour every week. That kind of sucks, but like, good for them. I mean, they've made a pile of money, which is generational wealth, mm-hmm. and they're still getting to play. And, and by all reports, the, the events are great fun to be at. I think until they can make their events mean something, yeah, I think they're going to struggle. Well, that's, no one. That's the biggest problem for me is I, I, don't, I really don't care who wins at this point. Yeah. And even to be fair, a lot of the PGA Tour events don't really mean that much. No, that, that's another subject. Um, yeah, but they still get you a master start, and they get yeah. you, and they mean something. They're part of bit. the establishment. Yeah, they mean a little bit. But the most compelling viewing and the thing that we all like to with any sport or anything are the moments that mean something, like a. 
Champions League semi-final is way more important than the second round of the season in the league, right? Like, it just is. Yeah. Even if it's the same two teams. Yeah, exactly. It just has to mean something. And, like, for them to sort of become, like, that legitimate other option, they have to create some meaning that's just – because money isn't it. Mm. No one goes to the Masters for money. No. You could take the prize money away from the Masters, you'd have the same field. Yeah. Money's really nice and it's part of – Life, but it, you think, you you can't, think, money doesn't make anything mean. Anything. You think that's crossed their mind here? <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, at the Masters, they they've got plenty to throw around. Um, you know, I mean, I, so and money doesn't buy prestige or no meaning. It's got to mean something. Yeah. So if they can find that, if they can create some meaning, as I said, I think it you need more than just the fourteen events. I think the Asian Tour, if you had this, if that was. That tour's yeah. version. If the lift thing, what they're doing now, was the premium version of the Salt, the big yeah. tour. Well, I just think I they think, got it in the wrong order. Yeah. So, mm. look, I, I like the competition. I think it's been a little bit a shame, all this name-calling and finger-pointing. And, mm. Yeah, I mean, and where the money comes from, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how important that is because money comes from everywhere for everything, and it's a little hypocritical, I think, sometimes. Well, to other point. sports, I mean, the one, God knows, every nobody you know, looks at what goes on in Saudi Arabia and thinks, well, that's okay. But, the you know, the other sports have gone there and, and there's not been hardly a ripple. I mean, Formula One and boxing and and nobody seems to bother that much. Yeah. But and golf has become this huge thing, you know. Which is, I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy there because I think if you actually understand the investment that Saudi Arabia make in America and, I mean, a lot of things that you buy on the supermarket shelves and products you use in America are probably fundamentally funded by Saudi. And yeah. my always thing is, we're just getting our money back. Mm. I've been filling my car up for thirty years at the at the petrol station. Yeah, it's one like, way to look at it. Yeah, we're just getting a little bit back. You know, we've been giving money that way, and it's just it's got to come back eventually. You know, and it's just coming back in a different way. Yeah, I don't know, but the, we'll see. I, I don't like the fractured sport, but I like the idea that there's competition. So, and I think there's room for everybody. Fifty-two weeks is a long time. There's a lot in a year. You don't need forty-three tournaments or something to make a tour and basically make – if you play those, you're not allowed to play anything else. Like, I don't know if that's actually perfect situation. Yeah. So, It'll be interesting to see what the DP World Tour – what decisions they make in the next month or so with regard to the players who've gone to live. Yeah. You know, there's strong indications or some indications that they'll let they'll let them back in, you know, on a one-by-one one – I mean, like, say, Martin Keimer, who's huge in Germany, they let him play in the BMW International – because mm-hmm. the sponsor will want them there, and that you know there could be plenty of examples of that happening. I think it'll eventually come back together naturally. It might take a while, and it's hard to see like how that would look. But I think the sponsors have got a big role in this. As I say, the the BMW is a perfect example because I know that they you know they want Martin Keimer in their event, and if they want them, they'll probably get them. Yeah, well, I mean, look, it all it, professional golf is about money. Otherwise, we'd be playing the British Am, right? Yeah. The money always sort of dictates. I mean, all of life is sort of guided by well, financial course. things, yeah. and so golf yeah, is going to be the same. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll see. You just want to see the best players play together all the time because then it, start, it does start meaning something when when number two in the world is playing against number four in the world, yeah. and like to have like Cam Smith and DJ and that not coming down the stretch every weekend against Scotty Scheffler and Justin Thomas is disappointing, you know. So um, it'd be nice. That it wouldn't be a permanent situation. Yeah. That it'll be like this. And the ball roll back. I mean, we, you and I, we, we talked about this for your latest column in Golf Australia. So, you know, give a brief summary of your feeling on where we're headed on that. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's so much more complicated. Well, first, philosophically, I think golf it probably was potentially more sensible to have the to have to say use the old course as a as a yardstick. This is the Rosetta Stone of golf. Mm. Let's just use the traditional tees at the old course and make that make sense. And that's kind of the distance the ball should go. Yeah. And we'll build golf around that because it just kind of made sense for three or 400 years and then all of a sudden. But saying that, we were going to get here anyway. I mean, sports science has taken over. Golf got more athletic. It wasn't just the ball it actually wasn't the ball at all, I don't think. It was the big drivers and the light shafts and the big sweet yeah, spots. That- the ball's easy fix, that's the thing. Isn't it? Yeah, but it doesn't fix it because- no, it, Yeah, it, it disguises the- It know. doesn't fix it because golf courses, once once distance sort of jumped a little bit with Titanium and the Pro V1, all of a sudden everybody added a 1,000 yards to their golf course and they made length disproportionately- advantageous it used to be sort of balanced it was like important yeah. to be it was nice to be long but it wasn't yeah. you could make up for it in other areas going to dominate because they've of that, yeah. taken out the ability to make up for it in other areas so you have to be long yeah so now everybody kids swinging speed sticks and like in the gym doing power lifts and stuff just so they can swing it at 130 miles an hour that's never going to go away anymore mm. that's happening so whatever you do to the equipment they're going to work it out and i think Golf is going really well, and I and maybe the purest in you and me and some people who love the old course and Royal Melbourne and persimmon and metal spikes and all that kind of pine for the good old days. But just You're because make me cry here, but the, I think the perfect analogy is just because a music sounds better on a vinyl record doesn't mean it's better. Like it does probably sound better with a nice setup and you get it out and it's all, it smells nice and you yeah. put it down and it crackles and it just sounds so beautiful. It's kind of nice to have every song of all time on Spotify on your phone, yeah. you know, and have it choose your music for you. And mm-hmm. like, it's kind of better. It's like having power windows in a car. Yeah. Well, and we're lazy, but it really kind of yeah. better to just push a button and do the wind up, right? Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't make sense that we have to have 8,000 yard courses for pros. But the reality is the game for the average person hasn't changed. Much maybe they can hit the drive ahead a bit easier, which is better in hybrids and stuff. It's yeah. it's a little bit easier, but bifurcation I think is a te- is a terrible direction because I golf. Do you not think we're there already? Well, I mean, the, you and I have played enough. I mean, yeah, but no, that's not the you, point. We don't play the same game anymore. No, but I think the where I think it's a bad call is that as much as people think we just get paid money because we're on TV every weekend, we don't really. People who like. Successful people, CEOs, successful businessmen, men and women, athletes all around the world, they all want to play golf and they want to play it well and they can't. And they think there's – and they just love – even I love watching the best golfers hit golf shots because it's just some – there's something really special about watching a great player play golf. There's something mystically magic about it. That – is why we play golf for so much money well, I'm like because we do something that people, sport. you know, I can I can watch things that you know. I always use Torval and Dean as the example. I mean, the ice dancing. I mean, ice true, dancing. but you watch ice dancing, but you watch lips. them and you think oh. you watch it once every four years and you think yeah. it's great. You don't. Yeah. They don't have a. No, they but don't you have could f- appreciate the the point is that you could appreciate just how good it was when you were watching it. Yeah, and yeah. I but I think yeah. golf has that spell more than anything else. 
You know, it casts that spell. And the fact that you can go down the street and when you come and play a Pro-Am with Tiger Woods, you're playing the identical game to him theoretically by the rules. Mm. There's a massive appeal to that. That and the other side of things is that why is, say, Titleist going to put in any money to R&D a ball they can't sell? And why is anybody going to buy a ball that I use when I'm using a different one? It completely changes. Do you not think that it will evolve the same way that the, when you, your country and my country, everywhere except America, had the change to the small from the small ball to the big ball forty years That's ago? That's different though. That we was all, we all did it. That we was actually it. bringing the rules together. Yeah, but we all did. It. Nobody went. Oh, I'm not doing that. I don't think making the ball go shorter would ruin the game. I think splitting up the rules wouldn't help would actually create a lot of lot more issues. And to me, it feels like a power grab from the authorities mm. wrestling a little bit power back from the manufacturers because the manufacturers are quite powerful in golf yeah. now and I don't think they like it. And I think it's more of an ego thing than a reality well, it thing. It could be, yeah. Because if you actually look at the numbers they come out, it's just – it's a science experiment. Mm. And if you can have a science experiment to come up with a rule, as has been proven over the last 20 or 30 years, the manufacturers are just going to find a way around that rule. And like Tiger said the other day, we're just going to get four-degree drivers or do something really different, and we're going to work it out. Yeah. You, see, you cannot is, though, stop people swinging it at 130 miles an hour anymore. You just can't. Yeah, but if we don't do something, I mean, my worry is that the, you know, the old line that golf at its best is an art, not a science. I mean, we're going to lose the art side of it almost completely. Well, we probably have already anyway. Um, yeah, well, but you haven't though because when I, if well, I was if well, I was we talked about Tiger at Royal Melbourne, that was an art. That wasn't a science. No, and yeah. it wouldn't matter what ball you used or what clubs you used at Royal Melbourne. It would be an art because the right place to hit it is the right place to hit it. I think we need more Royal Melbournes. Yeah. And I think if we'd played Royal Melbourne and the old course and Riviera and all the great courses and we'd only ever played those – no one would go home and swing speed sticks. Hmm. They'd go home and work on fades and draws and yeah. shape and spin yeah. rates. And we're only hitting it so far because they're making it so you have to hit it far. Hmm. If you made distance proportionately relevant again, then we would all go work on different stuff and the march wouldn't be on. But you've got coaches telling kids, I don't care where it goes, just swing it as fast as you can. That was never a thing. No. I think the golf course, the reactive, the reactive tiger proofing or whatever, and adding a thousand yards to every golf course back there twenty or so years ago, that was the mistake. Not really the yeah. equipment yeah. stuff, yeah. Because the equipment evolves to perform on the the course that we have. So I think you shape the way golf is played by presenting the right playing areas. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I bang on about this constantly. I think you've heard me say it a million times, but the, the first hint you can see that the course has been screwed with is that the bunkers are in the rough. Yeah. Which means that you're trying to hit it within the goalposts. You're not trying to – there's no shaping involved. You just – can you execute? And it's a bit soft, and the softer you make – again, it's this – everything seems to be – the reactive stuff seems to be the opposite thing. You make it that so we've got to make it soft, otherwise the ball will run too far, Jeff, and the course will play too short. Well, if you make it firm, the ball's going to run into the trees. At Royal Melbourne, 330 yards is a hindrance because mm. you can't hit a fairway because it just keeps running into yeah. the trees. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I think it might be a shame. If you set a courses like that, we wouldn't be hitting as many drivers, but I don't think that matters because you're seeing yeah. proper golf get played. I think the golf course is the number one area to look at and the way you set it up not brown it off per se, but make the ball do something when it hits the ground, 
have interesting slope and interesting setups and firmish greens and then you can make golf where position matters, not just distance. I mean, distance should always be an advantage. It's a massive skill and the best golfers are the ones who hit it the furthest, mm. but it should be proportionate and it shouldn't be – every be, PGA tournament – overwhelming. Every PGA tournament we leave, you're going home on Sunday night and you're thinking, geez, I'd be so much better if I could get 20 yards. That never was true 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was like you'd go home and it'd be nice to hit it further, but I really need to work on that little 60-yard pitch shot or, geez, I can't move the ball left to right very well at the moment. Like, I've got to work on that. Like, you don't do that. It's just like, how far can I hit it? Mm-hmm. And that's a direct reaction to the courses that we're trying to play. So I think shortening courses and firming them up would stop us trying to hit at 3.30 because it wouldn't be a thing anymore. It would be less of a thing. It would be a balanced thing. But again, the cat's out of the bag. Things always get – cars get faster, like everything gets bigger, life moves along, and golf, evidenced by the people who play it, they might not like it for the reasons you like it, but they like it, you know, and it's a good good game. I just don't like the splitting the rules thing, you know. Interesting. Anyway, on that happy note, we will leave it. Thank you for your time. 2006 US Open champion, Jeff Ogilvie. Thanks very much. No worries. No question one of the game's more interesting thinkers. And because of that, we sometimes forget just what a joy it was and is to watch Jeff play. Beautiful, languid golf swing. Not playing terribly back on the tour this year, it must be said too. So we might even get to see him bob up on the TV at some point. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Well, there are multiple paths to the professional game, and while Ogilvy's story is not atypical, our next guest is. Thomas Mesra started life behind the Iron Curtain in what is now the Czech Republic. His passion was for cars, a passion that led him all over the world, racing everything from open wheelers to V8s here in Australia. But along the way, Mesra found golf, and at the age of 50, his second sport career began when he qualified for the Australian over-50s Legends Tour. I was uh, 30 years old and, uh, and purely by accident. And, uh, you know, from the first day, I, I tried the game. Uh, I never forget that. I was playing in England, who we went on public course and uh, yeah, hack around for about six hours and 150 shots later. <laughs> <laughs> about 10 lost balls, you know, we, we finished. And, uh, and I got hooked on it from that day. That's 1988 Bathurst 1000 winner Thomas Mesra. Next time on The Thing About Golf. 